0: From um, Coast to Coast to Coast, you're listening to Tera
1: Informa.
0: Hello, and welcome back to Tera forma I'm Charlotte Thomason, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of the Environmental News Roundup. Before we start our episode, we would like to acknowledge that we are situated on Treaty 6, the historic and present meeting place of the Cree, Blackfoot, Métis, Soto, the Nakota Sioux, and the Dene. We are lucky to work, live, and study on this land as we educate and share on environmental issues and stories. We recognize that as settlers, we are not the ones to start this work, but rather are working in solidarity as treaty people with the various indigenous peoples and nations who have been protecting this land since time immemorial. We also recognize that environmental justice must be centered on indigenous people and their voices. We encourage you as we go through this episode and afterwards to do some research into the land you live on, educate yourself about decolonization, and learn about the ways that you can uplift indigenous peoples and work towards indigenous sovereignty through solidarity. You might have listened to a Terra Informa episode recently and thought, wow, this is great content. But where is the news on this environmental news program? A few months ago, we decided to adjust our show format and stopped including our headline section. It seemed like climate change and environmental issues were getting front page coverage and had become part of the daily conversation as we ventured into 2020. But oh, boy, has that ever changed. At the start of May, we read an article in the public interest magazine, Alberta Views, asking the question, who's keeping watch? The reference was made in response to the shrinking number of political journalists being employed to cover stories in the Alberta legislature. At the same time, our provincial government has been making new laws and policies on a regular basis, while we've been preoccupied with media covering the latest COVID-19 stats and economic crash. And I can't help but wonder, would there have been more public dissent had these significant changes to policy not been proposed during a global pandemic? Major changes are happening to how our province is governed, while fewer people are able to pay attention to, question and criticize, and generally inform the public about the potential impacts of these changes. Environmental news coverage in Alberta is no different. There are very few paid environmental journalists in the province. And it can be a struggle to keep up with the avalanche of new and ongoing resource development activities, environmental policies, pollution spills, and complaints, not to mention the impacts from climate change and other natural phenomena. As a team dedicated to making environmental radio, we feel it is our duty to keep our local environmental news in the public eye. We assigned the Terra Informa team to research and write up a tight summary on some of the biggest environmental news headlines from the past month that you might have missed due to the pandemic. So here's Terra Informa with the news.
2: Hello Terra Informa listeners, Amanda Rooney here. Alberta Environment and Parks has been the target of a national outcry from conservation groups, park users, businesses, and rural municipalities after the department announced that it would be fully closing 10 parks, partially closing another 10, and opening up 164 parks and recreation areas for joint management opportunities with third parties. The delisting of land under provincial and protected area legislations have been justified by the UCP government by calling them, quote-unquote, very small and underutilized. It's unclear what metrics were used to classify some parks in this way, and what joint management with third parties will look like remains mysterious, although the government has suggested that municipalities, non-profit organizations, and conservation organizations could be eligible. The Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society have rung an alarm bell that this could signal a move towards privatization of Alberta's parks. The sites slated slotted to be removed entirely from the park's system then become crown land, which is at jeopardy of being sold. Environment and Parks Minister Jason Nixon attempted to defuse outrage by explaining to press that there was never an intention to sell crown land. So... You can imagine the surprise when Albertans woke up weeks later to see an ad for a parcel of native prairie grassland and former crown land listed as Golden sunrise for sale. And now I'm a bit of a prairie girl at heart, which means that I never miss an opportunity to hammer home the fact that native prairie grasslands, such as the one put up for sale, are among the most endangered ecosystems in the world. This move confirmed the fears of worried conservationists that the United Conservative Party has little regard for the decades of effort that have been put into conserving Alberta's most at-risk landscapes and their inhabitants, which include the sage-grouse, swift fox, and burrowing owl. Accompanying these closures are reduced seasonal staff and increased user fees for the campground and other services such as showers. There'll be fewer groomed cross-country ski routes Shortened operating seasons, some visitor centers are even going to be closed, including the Elbow Valley and Barrier Lake visitor centers. General groundskeeping and even garbage collection for parks will be suspended for parks now classified as unserviced. These severe cuts to Alberta's park system are justified on the basis of saving money, modernizing parks, and focusing resources on Alberta's flagship parks. The $5 million in government savings resulting from this huge delisting might sound like quite a lot, but it's less significant when compared to some other expenses that the United Conservative Party has introduced to taxpayers. To put it into perspective, the Canadian Energy Centre, otherwise known as the Energy War Room, receives provincial funding to the tune of $30 million to quote-unquote Uplift Alberta's energy sector, and challenge inaccuracies. What comes out of the center seems limited to a slew of controversial and ill-conceived tweets that often become the news instead of delivering the news. One thread of tweets, for example, required an apology after calling the New York Times dodgy and not the most dependable. The new Democratic Party opposition have called for the War Room to be shut down. In the face of the summer of COVID-19, these decisions, cutting services to parks, seem even more unwise as other provinces have limited their camping facilities to residents only, and summer vacations are going to need to occur locally public response to these cuts has been robust, with one petition reaching 50,000 signatures and an Alberta omnibus survey showed that 7 out of 10 respondents strongly opposed the closure or removal of these areas from the park system. Before the pandemic began to seriously affecting life as we knew it, public protests were organized for both Edmonton and Calgary to demand reversing these decisions. The most recent developments on this story come from the NDP opposition demanding public consultation on these hasty and irreversible decisions.
0: That was Terra Informer Amanda Rooney speaking about the changes to Alberta parks and public lands. In our next story, Terra Informer Sonic Patel takes us through the changes to environmental monitoring in the Alberta energy sector.
1: Hello listeners, this is Sonic Patel, and for our next story, we discuss the suspension of environmental regulations for the energy sector in Alberta. On May 20th, the Alberta Energy Regulator announced that they would be suspending several monitoring requirements for energy projects for an indeterminate amount of time. This decision was made after the agency received what they describe as legitimate concerns from energy corporations about their ability to conduct monitoring in accordance with social distancing guidelines. Among the many monitoring activities that are suspended include the fumes from burning, detecting or repairing methane emissions, which is one of the largest and most potent greenhouse gases, surface water that no longer requires testing unless the water escapes to the environment, soil and groundwater monitoring is no longer needed unless it threatens human health or ecological receptors, and no wildlife monitoring of any kind is required. Only soil and groundwater monitoring are scheduled to resume by September 30th, while the other suspensions are not tied to any deadlines. This news comes hardly a month after a heartbreaking headline about the deaths of approximately 50 birds at the Curl Lake site. As birds begin to return to Canada in spring, they look for water to rest on their long journey, making tailing ponds the unfortunate sites where birds can be exposed to the pollutants of the fossil fuel extraction industry. These birds, in this case mostly eared grebes, won't complete their nearly 8,000-kilometer journey to breed for the flock. And this incident isn't uncommon in the Alberta oil sands. In 2015, 31 great blue herons died at a syncrute site, and in 2008, 1,600 birds died at a tailings pond. While wildlife monitoring is being suspended, bird deterrents are still required. However, it's important to mention that bird deterrents were employed at the Curl Lake site, Despite radar detection, noise cannons, eye-safety lasers, scarecrows, and long-range acoustic devices, more than 100 birds a day have landed at the sites. The death of grebes is one of many environmental impacts of the Alberta energy industry, impacts that we might no longer be aware of as the new regulations no longer require monitoring. But how valid are the concerns that the Alberta energy regulator cited? The COVID-19 crisis is undoubtedly a significant global event. I doubt any of us could claim otherwise, and I hope all of you are doing your best to socially distance and stay safe. This concern might be especially salient in the oil sands, which often require that employees be flown in and flown out for their work schedule. These flights can be dangerous vectors of transmission, spreading COVID. However, oil and gas operations are continuing, and many employees are returning back to work. While companies like Syncrude claim that their on-site personnel has been limited to what is essential to maintain operations, the industry hasn't committed to an end of fly-in-fly-out workers. And an outbreak at Crow Lake has actually been connected with the infection of hundreds of people. And while the oil and gas industry and Alberta Energy Regulator might claim that environmental monitoring is not essential for the operation of oil sands projects, others would disagree. Impacts like groundwater contamination are substantial threats to human, wildlife, and ecosystem. And without a monitoring system in place, Alberta can easily find itself blindsided by an ecological crisis. Another substantial concern voiced by researchers like the University of Alberta's Deborah Davidson in a statement to the CBC is the gap that this is causing in the long-range environmental record. Researchers rely on a consistent environmental record to identify trends in the impacts of oil and gas operations. Any gaps in this record challenge the validity of these types of analysis and findings that could be identified from this data. Another concern about the validity of this decision is the complete lack of public consultation. The decision was made unilaterally, which means that the oil and gas companies did not make public submissions. This means members of the public, like you and me, can't actually see this record for why oil and gas companies claimed they could not meet their environmental obligations. Prior to the COVID pandemic, no unilateral decisions have been made since 1996. Since the pandemic, the Alberta Energy Regulator has issued 10. These decisions also did not consult with the public and affected groups like the Athabasca-Chippewan First Nations, located in the heart of oil sands activity. These groups rely on this monitoring to ensure that they are safe from the impacts of adjacent fossil fuel operations. And the timing of this announcement also seems a little surprising. Alberta appears to be in a getting-back-to-work period, with businesses being allowed to reopen. The decision comes just days after the province's relaunch plan for the economy headlined by a bid to host the playoffs for the National Hockey League. You, like me, might be a little confused by this inconsistency. The oil and gas industry is continuing to use fly-in-fly-out employees for the operations of their sites without issue, but yet they're unable to do so for their monitoring employees? This story is one of many in this episode that speaks to one somewhat unspoken yet critical theme of the COVID pandemic. Political use of this pandemic to strip away regulation and environmental protection. As we do our best to cope with the COVID crisis, don't forget that our actions in the face of this adversity will be crucial to determining how we face the looming climate crisis that's just around the corner. This has been Sonic Patel. Thank you.
0: Thank you for that, Sonic. Finally, as we see protests emerge around the world as people fight for equality and justice against police brutality, the government of Alberta has passed new legislation to limit the ability of Albertans to protest on what is deemed, quote-unquote, essential infrastructure. Here's Elizabeth Dowdell.
3: On May 28, 2020, Premier Jason Kenney's Bill 1, Critical Infrastructure Defense Act, passed its third reading in the Alberta Legislature. With 30 votes for and 6 against, the bill is waiting for royal assent to come into force. When it does, questions about the bill's scope and reach that were raised by the NDP opposition during debate may finally be answered instead of dismissed as ridiculous. One issue relates to the language and definition of a highway, which could... Given the definition used in the Act, include infrastructure like local roads, bike paths, even driveways, either public or privately owned. The bill makes it illegal to, quote, enter, damage or destroy, obstruct, interrupt, or interfere with the construction, maintenance, use, or operation of essential infrastructure, End quote. That's language from the Act itself. These actions must be taken with willful intent, but that could be hard to prove or disprove if you find yourself passing by and caught up in a protest on a city street. Another issue is that conviction for violation of the bill comes with high fines for both individuals and corporations. Now, opposition justice critic Kathleen Ganley had pointed out that much of what the bill criminalizes was already illegal under existing laws, and so this seems like government overreach that could potentially infringe... On the kind of assembly guaranteed to citizens in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So, if Bill 1 sounds like a scare tactic to make individuals uneasy about protesting and terrified of civil disobedience, you might be right. Just a week earlier, on May 20th, Energy Minister Sonia Savage made a couple of remarks on a podcast run by the Canadian Association of Oil Well Drilling Contractors. These remarks suggest the United Conservative Party attitude towards local environmental protest. Speaking about the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, Minister Savage said, quote, Now is a great time to be building a pipeline because you can't have protests of more than 15 people. Let's get it built. And people are not going to have tolerance and patience for protests that get in the way of people working. People need jobs, and those types of ideological protests that get in the way are not going to be tolerated by ordinary Canadians, End quote. Why is a party elected, with the largest democratic mandate in Alberta history, taking such a strong anti-public protest stance? Well, the UCP has seen several large public rallies critical of its environmental and public policy international headlines were made when thousands of people marched to the Alberta legislature with climate change activist Greta Thunberg in October 2019. Since then, the UCP government has become increasingly unpopular with large segments of the Alberta public, and regular protests have taken place on the steps of the government building, featuring teachers, doctors, students, and many other citizens. The inspiration for Bill 1 is more recent though, and dates back to February 2020. Canada was having a moment of advocacy for environmental justice and Indigenous rights. Solidarity actions were taking place across Turtle Island. Citizens were blockading railways to uphold the Indigenous rights and sovereignty of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs and draw attention to resource development policies and settler-Indigenous relations across the country. Reaction to the announcement of Bill 1 was swift and critical. Indigenous, labor, and environmental groups questioned the legality and democracy of the bill. Assembly of First Nations Regional Chief for Alberta, Marlene Poitras, said the bill, quote, will serve to erode individual rights, unfairly target Indigenous peoples, and has no place in a democratic society, end quote. The Confederacy of Treaty 6 First Nations Grand Chief, William Morin penned a letter to the Lieutenant Governor, Lois Mitchell, calling the bill, quote, immensely vague and unconstitutional, a direct assault on our fundamental human rights as Indigenous peoples in defending our traditional territories, and that the bill aims to criminalize and penalize free speech and right to protest, end quote. Similar statements were made by representatives with the Alberta Federation of Labour and Climate Justice Edmonton. What we here at Terra Informa take away from these headlines and the background surrounding them is that our current provincial government is comfortable intimidating citizens who choose to publicly protest. The UCP are happy to ridicule elected opposition critics on public record for raising concerns about democracy that are echoed far and wide, and are proud and supportive when our energy minister says ordinary Canadians won't accept protest behavior. These are ordinary Canadians in Albertans attending local protests. We are ordinary Canadians and Albertans attending local protests. Creating an environment of fear around voicing protest or dissent, criminalizing peaceful civil disobedience, and delegitimizing citizens by calling them foreign-funded or eco-terrorists requires intentional and calculated effort. This is a tactic, but it is not a new one. Thank you, Elizabeth. The relationship between rights legitimacy of
0: dissent, and equality are well-founded. Terra Informer Amanda Rooney explains this relationship further.
2: Hello listeners, Amanda Rooney here again. In response to Bill 1, we started thinking about how dissent plays a crucial role in environmental movements, and how it is important to recognize that these movements are not started by the white-led environmental organizations that often dominate media coverage and funding. Here on Turtle Island, Indigenous peoples have been at the forefront of resistance to destruction of lands and waters since time immemorial. We see this demonstrated in the Wet'suwet'en fight for sovereignty, the powerful movement created by Indigenous women in Idle No More, in the resistance to water contamination from pipelines in standing rock, in the ongoing tar sands trial put forward by the Beaver Lake Cree Nation to fight against the cumulative impacts Of fossil fuel extraction on their treaty rights, and the steadfast resistance during the 1990 Oka crisis. But these movements that pressure governments to protect lands and waters are often met with militarized force, demonstrated when tanks filled with military drove up to Oka and Standing Rock, dispensing tear gas and rubber bullets. Right now, we are seeing the same pattern of violence by government and police in the context of racial justice. And this fight for justice led by the black community has direct ties to environmentalism. It is not just indigenous peoples that bear the brunt of environmental destruction. Black and often poorer communities are hit hard. While it's the wealthiest in our society that are responsible for the emissions driving the climate crisis, and environmental degradation. This, of course, includes fossil fuel companies. These are the same companies who, in their quest for extraction and exploitation, disproportionately displace black and indigenous communities, compromising the physical, social, and economic well-being of these communities in the process. These observations are what's at the center of environmental racism. Environmental racism is when the negative impacts of environmental hazards are experienced disproportionately by communities of color. Environmental harms such as landfills, chemical plants, and large-scale energy projects are more often located in close proximity to neighborhoods where black and indigenous people live. In the United States, Dr. Robert D. Bullard inspired much of the current environmental racism advocacy. Dr. Beverly L. Wright, further explores the disproportionate impacts of natural disasters like Hurricane Katrina in The Wrong Complexion for Protection, How the Government Response to Disaster Endangers African American Communities. In Canada, Carleton University's Dr. Ingrid Walden is the director of the Enrich Project, which stands for Environmental Noxiousness, Racial Iniquities, and Community Health Project. Dr. Waldron is also the author of There's Something in the Water, Environmental Racism in Indigenous and Black Communities. Her work examines the structural inequities and environmental racism affecting Black and Indigenous communities in so-called Nova Scotia. The environmental justice movement responds to environmental racism in calls for respect and justice for all people, responsible use of land and resources, protection from environmental harms, the right to safe and healthy work environments, among other calls to action. While these academics have done work to document environmental racism and theorize environmental justice as a movement, it takes people on the ground to live and act it. The movement to address climate change must be rooted in justice, work to dismantle white supremacy, and address racial inequities. Climate justice and racial justice work towards defeating a shared enemy the underlying systems of structural violence, extraction and exploitation of people and environments. The systems from which climate change has emerged are the very same systems from which police violence against black lives is a part of. It's true these systems got us to where we are today, but we have the power to challenge these systems and demand change going forward. Here at Terra Informa, We endeavor to cover environmental intersectionality, and we strive to achieve the mission of our parent radio station, CJSR 88.5 FM, to, quote, enlighten and entertain our audience through high quality and diverse programming that constantly challenges the status quo, end quote. That being said, our volunteer news crew is non-black and predominantly white. We have been complicit in anti-blackness with our coverage and are embedded in the systems that uphold white supremacy, including the institution of the University of Alberta, where our show records. We're committed to learning and unlearning and doing the work to amplify the voices of communities facing oppression, scrutinizing and highlighting the relationship between environmental issues and systemic oppression. Environmental issues are political issues inextricably tied up with race and the fight for equality. Before environmentalism was even a recognized cause, Black, Indigenous, and racialized communities have taken leadership, contributing immense amounts of time and labor in resisting environmental injustices for which they are often the least responsible. We encourage all you listeners out there to explore your areas of interest and consider how Black people might be excluded from those areas. Examine what subtle oppression, like microaggressions, might be common in your communities. We live in an era of immense information availability, and we can choose to pay for and tune into the voices of Black folks and Indigenous folks in our communities.
0: Thank you, Amanda. That's all the time that we have for this week. We hope that we've caught you up on some of the news you might have missed, and you take the time to reflect on the relationship between race, justice, inequality, and environmental issues. I've been your host, Charlotte Thomason. If you listened to this episode and thought of a voice we should amplify, or a story we should explore, send us a message on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Terrainforma. Or email us at, at com. We'll be including links to some resources for our listeners to learn more about racial and environmental justice movements through these channels. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all our content is created by a team of volunteers. For more information on these and other environmental news stories, visit our website, www.terrainforma.ca. And I'll catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa.